after marking him number 340, as Brother Eddie has asked us to do, number 340, just before we begin the lesson this morning per se, might I make one brief announcement in addition to those that, that were shared earlier. It was my failure to share with uh, Brother Lester that he might add one more thing to that list of announcements. We had made mention of it last Wednesday evening, but just as uh, an announcement about that gospel meeting that I'll be a part of, it's only a one, uh, it lasts through Wednesday, but I speak only one night, tomorrow night, and that's at the Beach Grove congregation up in the northern extremity of Jackson County. So I, if, if there happens to be more than one Beach Grove or community by way of that name, this is the one situated as you drive out of Gainesburg, go past the high school, ultimately go a little bit past North Springs even, and then turn over to your left. There it'll be the Beach Grove Church of Christ there in the northern extremity of Jackson County. Myself, as well as several other invited speakers, will hold that uh, gospel meeting with different speakers each night. And I'll be there tomorrow night at the 7 o'clock hour, if, if it be the will of God. It is good for us to be able to be together this morning and to consider a portion of the Word of God. And aren't the words of Psalm 26 a lovely thing for us to consider? Lord, I have loved the habitation of thine house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. The enjoyment and the fervor of our spirit and our desire to come together today perhaps ties in directly to the title I've given to the lesson this morning, Emotion in Worship. I would invite your attention with me over the next few moments as we take an interesting journey and look at some of the features related to what may seem to be, in the mind of some, a paradox or at least a confusing issue. What can be said about emotion in the way of worship? Some introductory thoughts, and then we'll look at a number of verses that challenge us, I think, to understand that better. Isn't it the case that the very mention of emotion in the same sentence as worship can cause a great deal of differences in response? There are some that almost recoil in shock at the very mention of those two ideas together. They seem to feel that they're disjoint. They seem to feel that there is no correspondence whatsoever. There must be no emotion in worship, or so it would seem. But on the other hand, and at the other extreme, there are those who almost base entirely their worship on an emotional response and an emotional feeling to that which they observe or to some other matter that is set before them. Thus, there is an incredibly wide spectrum as it touches the subject of religion and emotion. Perhaps in the history of the churches of Christ, there has also been some degree of com, uh, confusion or perplexity in, the, in regard to the same subject. I hope this morning that we can put much of that to rest and just let the Word of God speak to us about the nature of emotion, if you please, in regard to, to religion itself. At the very bottom, I have merely given you what the definition of the word emotion is. Consulting a rather recent dictionary, the notion of emotion simply means strong feeling. That is to say, a strong, concerted element of feeling with regard to some matter, with regard to some issue. If one feels strongly about it, if one feels in fact very certain and very powerful in regard to it, that's descriptive of emotion, you see. And hence, as we appreciate that given fact, we should also notice, as one describes strong feelings, that's a very di different matter than describing how those feelings might be displayed or in what way they might be channeled or presented. 
we'll need to address that thought, obviously, this morning. And thus, let me close that slide and prompt the next one by asking the question, where should emotion fit into our worship? Or should it fit at all? Is there any place for emotion? Or is emotion a bad thing with regard to worship? Let's begin that journey that I mentioned earlier by beginning, in fact, in the Old Testament and trying to prompt very certainly and also very exactly the nature of the following relationship. I think we understand very easily that truth is the underlying issue. Truth is the underlying matter. And hence, the obvious next matter would be, how does emotion relate to truth? Is emotion a definite and certain guide when it comes to truth? If so, then obviously emotion should be a very powerful and acceptable standard with regard to worship. But we need to answer that question first. How does emotion relate to truth? Let's begin that with some examples, if you please, in the Old Testament. Would you revisit in your mind with me the fourth chapter of 1 Samuel? In that rather overwhelming and breathtaking scene, the following scene of events takes place. Now notice as we're again trying to describe emotion on the one hand and truth on the other. Our issue is going to be, were there ever any individuals who were very emotional about what they were doing? They were, had strong feelings about what they were doing. But yet what they did, was it pleasing to God or was it not? In 1 Samuel, the fourth chapter, the children of Israel found themselves in a rather unfavorable situation. In fact, it was a situation like this. They were in battle against their enemies that were very well known. They were the Philistines. And in fact, in the first four verses of that chapter, we learned that the Philistines slew, killed 4,000 Israelites. On that occasion, the Philistines were getting the better end of this war. They were winning, you see, and Israel was suffering mightily. When that particular battle came to its conclusion, the people who survived came back to the Israelite camp, and the elders of Israel were beside themselves. Why has this happened? What brought about this defeat? The elders of Israel had what they thought was a brilliant idea. They said, let us go and fetch the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh, bring it here into the encampment site, and we will in fact incorporate it as a part of our battle against the Philistines. They were going to let the Ark of the Covenant lead them into battle against the Philistines. And thus they proceeded with that plan. They sent to Shiloh, had the Ark of the Covenant brought, and might I invite your attention to notice how did Israel react when the Ark of the Covenant came into the camp? Verses 5 and 6 tell us the people shouted, so much so that the earth rang again. There was great enthusiasm there was great energy and excitement when this Ark of the Covenant came into the, into the encampment site. The people were worked into a frenzy as they no doubt thought about the victory that certainly would be theirs as that Ark of the Covenant led them into battle against their, their famous enemies, the Philistines. Beginning in verses 10 and 11, we read about what happened when the battle next ensued. When the next stage of the encampment, in fact, set forth and the battle took place, we perhaps, with a shocking look on our face, discover 
30,000 Israelites were killed. The Ark of the Covenant was captured. The two priests were killed. All of that took place. The scene was now worse than it was before. But yet they had been prompted with great enthusiasm and energy and great strong feeling with regard to what certainly would be success with the coming of the Ark of the Covenant. Do we not learn a valiant lesson here? Enthusiasm and emotion, strong feeling, do not guarantee truth. God had not told them to bring the Ark of the Covenant and take it into warfare. That Ark of the Covenant, remember, was emblematic of God's presence. It was symbolic of the great power and nature of God, and their lives were not lived in compliance to His teaching. And hence, they, were, they lost. Again, an interesting thought. Here, their enthusiasm did not mean that they were in speaking or at least living in regard to truth. Emotion doesn't guarantee truth on that occasion, did it? Strong feeling was no guarantee that there was truth in what they were doing. But let's consider yet another example. A little bit later in the Old Testament, as you'll notice, this one in 1 Kings 18 as we look a couple of books forward in the Old Testament, this time we come to that rather memorable scene when the prophet of God named Elijah was laboring to attempt to instill within Israel a love for God and a respect for who he was as the only true and living God. The kings of Israel at that time were named Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Perhaps I need say no more. These two wicked leaders of Israel were responsible for introducing Baal worship in Israel. They were responsible for encouraging idolatry. They were responsible for leading Israel aside from the truth of God. They were very singly to, to be noted for causing so much grief in Israel. At this time, Elijah, that bold and courageous prophet of God... It was his challenge by virtue of the commission of God to try to confront Ahab and to help him see the error of his way. In the 18th chapter of 1 Kings, we read a rather amazing scene of events. In verse 21, as, Moses, as, as Elijah addressed the people, he merely asked them this rather penetrating question, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, serve him. But if Baal, then serve him. Moses, or rather Elijah, boiled it down to something very simply, didn't it? Here were the people of God giving attention to Baal and to these other gods of the Canaanites. And Elijah simply said, let's face it, if Baal is God, then he should be worshipped. But if it is Jehovah God of heaven... If it is the Yahweh God, then He has no equal. Your complete allegiance and your complete devotion should be directed to Him. And it was at that point that that contest, as it is sometimes called, took place on Mount Carmel. It was that contest where the prophets of Baal were such that they prepared a sacrifice, a bullock if you please, and fire was to be called from heaven to consume it. Now is where we come to how that attaches to our lesson this morning. The prophets of Baal dutifully prepared their sacrifice. They laid it forth upon the altar, and then they proceeded with great energy and great enthusiasm and with great direction to plead for Baal to send fire to consume that sacrifice. 
And we probably each remember how the morning ended. They called upon Baal all morning. Nothing happened. In fact, even at one point, Elijah said, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's off on a journey. Maybe you need to call louder. He can't hear you. And at that point, they began to do other things. They leaped and jumped around on the altar. Does that sound like enthusiasm? They cut themselves so that the blood gushed forth, thinking that that would garner Baal's attention. It didn't. Finally, Elijah, in essence, said, let me try. And he humbly, but rather directly, called on Jehovah God of heaven. And you might remember that as God sent forth that fire, it not only lapped up all the water that had been poured upon the sacrifice and out of the trench that surrounded it, it lapped up the dirt, it lapped up the sacrifice. Who answered? God did. Notice that showy, however, that showy work was done by the prophets of Baal. Their enthusiasm, their energy, their great feeling and emotion did not have anything to do with the truth of that day. One more time, we've learned that emotion does not guarantee truth. Just because one is emotional in regard to something doesn't mean that he's right. He could be emotionally wrong. He could be misdirected in his feelings, and they may best be directed in a way that's toward falsehood. Those two examples could be multiplied by many more. And in brevity, I've listed a few others if you'd like to turn attention to them at some point in this week. In Hosea 4, verses 12 and 13, in Amos 5, 21, in Micah 6, verse 7, we have references of times when in Israel the people were involved in worship. They were involved in service, but God said, Your service is not acceptable. Your service is lacking. Your service is a failure because though your heart perhaps in the outward sign is in it, you are not doing it in accord to what I've provided or in fact your heart is not in it at all. All of that prompts us it seems to me to notice the key element with regard to emotion at least on this slide. Emotion you see since it is a strong feeling finds its character from the heart. What are you and I strongly feeling about? It must be something that's important to our character, something that's important to our heart. And since emotion is thus a byproduct of the heart, I suppose we should recall Jeremiah 17, verse number 9. That great prophet of old and courageousness told Israel, "...the heart is deceitful above all things." and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Did you notice what the inspired prophet said? The heart is deceitful above all things. Since it is the case that emotion flows forth from the heart, and since it's the case that the heart can be well deceived, is it not then the case that one could have misdirected zeal, misdirected emotion? And thus, worship or any other service could be done in a way that's not pleasing to God. Those kinds of conclusions thus seem exceedingly appropriate. And they're only magnified by that famous passage in Proverbs 14.12, as well as it's reiterated in Proverbs 16.25. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You and I make a gigantic mistake 
And in fact, any human does. If he or she thinks that the feelings and emotions of one's heart are a sufficient and complete guide to what would be the truth of God, that simply isn't the case. If we could ask the prophets of Baal today, what would they say? Did their emotion guarantee truth? If we could ask the Israelites in 1 Samuel 4, what would they say? Oh, they would tell us quickly, be advised, emotion, strong feeling is not a direct correspondence to truth. There, of course, is much more that you and I need to say about this. Let's use these examples to prompt us, though, to look at some of the next elements and some of the next ideas. This relationship to truth is only magnified when we come to the famous words of our Lord Himself in John the fourth chapter. On that occasion, Jesus there said, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The Lord thus forever asserted that there were two vital components to worship. One of them is spirit. One of them is truth. It may well be that we have placed tremendous emphasis in the history of the churches of Christ upon the matter concerning truth. And that certainly is an appropriate emphasis, for the Lord said so. We do know, do we not, that truth itself is that which is set forth by the Word of God. For the Lord declared in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Thus, we know that our worship and our service to God if it is to be in truth, must be bounded by, directed by, channeled through the elements of what's declared in the Holy Scriptures. To go beyond it is grievous, presumptuous sin on my part or yours. To go beyond it is to assume what we are not at liberty to assume. The children of Israel assumed that if they took the Ark of the Covenant into battle, that it would guarantee victory. They assumed wrong. When men today assume that emotion is a guarantee for acceptable worship, they assume wrong. We just noted that that assumption is not a valid one. Just as surely, though, as the Lord declared the necessity of truth, He also asserted the necessity of spirit. What did Jesus mean when He said that God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit? What does it mean to worship the Lord in spirit? In what way is, should that be explained and how should it be considered? I would invite your attention to these comments. That word there as it appears, that word spirit, seems to direct direction toward the rationality of man, the desire of man, that which is his will to accomplish. In other words, what do you and I wish to do? Is it man's desire to worship? Or is he just gathering to go through the motions? Is he coming together out of a habit, out of a ritual, or is it his desire to pour forth his spirit, the very character of his being, in thanksgiving and appreciation to the God who made him, who sustains him, and who has a home in heaven waiting for those that are the faithful? When the Lord made reference to spirit, he did touch upon, didn't he? The very nature of where is our desire, our initiative, our will, is what we're doing now something that we greatly desire to do? Or are we more often than not looking at our watch wondering, when's he going to hush? When's this service going to be over so I can get to the house and eat? I'm hungry. 
maybe we need to do a better job sometimes at making certain our preparation is right and our mind is attuned to the frequency of God's will so that we truly can worship Him in spirit. Didn't Micaiah utter those remarkable words in 1 Kings twenty-two fourteen? When has he had the boldness to stand before those two kings? He there said, What the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. Micaiah wasn't interested in what they thought. He wasn't interested in what their preferences might be or what they wanted him to say. He had even been previously urged to say certain things so that he'd please the kings. Micaiah was wiser than that. He, as a prophet, knew he had to bubble forth whatever the Lord gave him to speak, and he said, What the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. When we come together in worship, be it at this hour, at the Bible study periods, and the Sunday evening times, it should be the desire of our heart to do that and to express appreciation and thanksgiving to the God who made it possible, who sent His Son to die for us, whose Son purchased the church that we can be a part of, whose Son put in place a plan of salvation we can obey, whose Son holds out before us the hope of heaven, and whose Son, in fact, said, I'm coming again, Revelation 22, verses 17 and following. Our spirit then should be involved in our worship. There's no question about that. That alone indicates that there ought to be emotion in our worship. Now, we need to be very cautious. The emotion alone is no guide to what's done as being right. But if we just come together with no feeling, with no emotion for the loveliness of the worship, we in fact are failing to obey that command of John 4.24. If we just come together to take up an hour on Sunday morning, are we worshiping? What does that word worship mean? The word means to express worth-ship, W-R-T-H-S-H-I-P. Are we expressing to God His worthiness? Are we expressing to God the lovely nature of the worthy character that He has involved Himself with the human family spiritually? That's the whole idea behind our worship, and it's accomplished as we direct acts of reverence to Him. Those acts He has specified, we are not left to guess them. Hence, as we ponder worshiping in spirit and in truth, it prompts us to think of some more examples in which we can truly see the picture of what worship is to be. It should involve our spirit. It should involve our strong feelings of emotion. But those feelings must be channeled in accordance to the truth that He has revealed. Those feelings, those emotions are not to just run the gambit of what we might wish they could do. They must be proscribed and inscribed by the nature of what God has revealed in His Word. Recall, for example, 2 Chronicles chapter 15. There in the heart of the Old Testament, we notice a rather overwhelming scene involving not only some kings, and Asa was the king on the throne at this time, but notice the prophet Oded, O-D-E-D, was given by God a particular message for King Asa. And on this occasion, the message was a very favorable one. Might I ask you to notice the reading of just a couple of the verses. All of that takes place in the first 15 verses of that chapter, but might I direct your attention only to verses 12 and 15. That's Second Chronicles 15, verses 12 and 15. 
And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. Though there were times when Israel failed. That is to say, they didn't seek God with all their heart and all their soul. There were times they wanted to serve God a little bit and serve other gods a little bit. But this prophet Oded, as well as some others, challenged Israel to understand there are no other gods. There's only the true God of heaven. And notice again the commendation. They, the children of Israel, entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. When they did that, what was the result? Verse 15. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with their whole desire, and he was found of them, and the Lord gave them rest round about. Notice in that passage we again see some strong feeling. We see emotion here. Judah rejoiced at God. They rejoiced over the covenant and the oath they had made, and God blessed them. We see a rather dramatic difference. Israel rejoiced in 1 Samuel 4, but the Philistines destroyed them practically the next day. In 1 Kings 18, we notice the prophets of Baal were excited, but they were defeated soundly. Here, the children of Israel rejoiced, and God blessed them. Why? Because this rejoicing was channeled within the proper response to God. Their spirit was tuned to God. They were serving Him with all their heart and with all their soul. And when we, in fact, strive in that way today to express our emotion to God, He again will be pleased because our emotion will be guided between the boundaries as set by the Word of God. Today, when you and I turn on the television and watch some of the worship services that are televised by various and sundry religious organizations, there is easy to see much emotion, much strong feeling in the mind of those leading and in the audience participants. We must ever ask the question, though, and keep resoundingly in mind, strong feeling does not guarantee truth. Emotion is no guarantee that God is pleased. Rather, God is pleased when that emotion and strong feeling is coupled with a thus saith the Lord. When our feelings are channeled by the description that God has given, then that worship is acceptable. Great good will be accomplished in us as well as shown forth toward others. This scene in Second Chronicles only prompts us to maybe look at some final thoughts during the lesson time this morning. For isn't it true that even concerning what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, this matter concerning worship, this matter concerning other things, is not just something that's new to our day. It also occurred in the Lord's day, didn't it? In Matthew 15, Jesus said, This people honoreth me with their lips, and draweth nigh unto me with their mouth. But their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Question. Is it possible thus for people to gather and worship in a vain way? And that word vain means useless. It means without power. It means it brings about not the desired benefit. Well, absolutely, the answer is yes, for that's what the Lord said. Vain worship, and thus any time 
one or more individuals were to strive to worship and to do so prompted only by emotion, only by the strong feelings of one's heart or being, and not by the channeled character of the Word of God, that emotion is misdirected. It's directed in an improper fashion, isn't it? Not only did the Lord address that point, but think about some of the other ways that the New Testament writers make certain that we do not misunderstand that idea. The opening three verses of Romans, the 10th chapter. This was our lesson text that Lucas read a little bit earlier this morning. We can almost hear the very heart of Paul poured forth when he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Isn't that a mouthful? Here Paul was earnest in his desire for the Jewish family to come to a proper realization of the Christ and what it meant to serve God acceptably in the current era. He said, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And he went on to say in verse 2, They have a zeal of God. The Jews, were they enthusiastic? Were they excited about the prescriptions, the law of Moses? Were they, in fact, determined to present them and bind them upon others? Absolutely. But notice Paul's statement, They have a zeal of God, but it's not according to knowledge. Today, we are in the same predicament if we allow our, demo, our emotions to be the only guide. We may well have zeal without knowledge, and that's not a good place to be, is it? In fact, that is a very disastrous place to be, for look what happened to the Jews. Their zeal, when not coupled with knowledge, led them to, in fact, proclaim their own righteousness instead of the righteousness of God, and that won't do. In Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9, we learn that we need to be clothed with the very righteousness of the Christ if we are to appear righteous before God. Our own righteousness will not suffice. May we thus understand that when we come together in worship, it should be an emotional time. It should be a time of strong feeling when our heart, in fact, pours forth its genuine feelings of thankfulness to God. But... Should it be a circus atmosphere like what we sometimes see in the religious world about us? Absolutely not. All things must be done decently and in order. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 40. What that spirit idea indicates and that emotion reminds us is our emotion should be, in fact, within the boundaries as set forth by the Word of God. Anything more than its falsehood, its presumptuousness, and our emotion is misdirected. This text in Romans chapter 10 reminds us some of the statements Paul made concerning the elements of our worship. In 1 Corinthians 14, 15, I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the understanding. I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the understanding. Notice in both instances, both with regard to prayer and singing, he said, Paul did, I'll do it with my spirit. Was Paul enthusiastic about his worship? Sure he was. Should we be? Without a doubt. If we're not, we have heart problems. I mean spiritual heart problems. We are not appreciative enough of what the Lord has done for us. 
and we're far too ritualistic, going through whatever motions there may be. When we come together on Sundays and Wednesdays, and at other times, like gospel meeting times, it should be an emotional time. But that emotion prescribed within the lovely boundaries of what is set forth in the Word of God. That idea about emotion brings us to the close of our lesson this morning. And I've tried to state a summary statement in regard to misplaced emotion. You see, misplaced emotion, whether that involves the substitution of emotion for truth, or whether that involves allowing emotion to guide and dictate what we do, in either case, it's misplaced. The strong feelings of our heart are to be expressed as we do the will of God and submit our stubborn will to His. Then we can feel certain that our emotions and our strong feelings will in fact be met with God's favorable reaction as we humbly do His blessed will. In conclusion to the lesson this morning, I hope that we will have learned some of the following ideas, or at least have been reminded of them, that God is a spirit and that He must be worshipped both in spirit and in truth. And as we consider the nature of that worship, the spirit part of it again means the will, the desire, the intellect, the, the intuition, if you please. And when we thus allow the Scriptures to guide us in that emotional response, it will be a zeal that's rightly directed. It'll be a zeal that in fact will be contagious as others see the excitement we feel over the great blessings that God has provided to us and the lovely nature of the church in the world today. This very morning, as you think about your life and as I think about my own, let us be reminded that when we come together to worship, it's not just an hour of deadness. It's not just an hour to passively sit by and watch somebody else. It's an hour in which we participate because we love the Lord. We want to sing and we want to pray and we want to give as we've been prospered and we want to pray and we want to listen to God's Word expounded because it brings us such excitement and we want to know more about the Lord each day. That kind of zeal and that kind of emotion will lead us to find ourselves directed in a happy way with regard to the Word of God and not just to have misplaced emotion. For remember, the heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17, 9. Today, if you find yourself in need of responding publicly to the call of invitation, maybe it has been that your zeal has been lacking. Maybe worship has lost its enthusiasm for you. Maybe you don't look forward to coming. Begin to make some changes because honestly, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. If you'll involve yourself... With each passing day, with the Word of God, there will be a change wrought in your life. Your perception will change. I'll guarantee it. Better yet, the Lord guarantees it. For we are admonished as we grow that He will, in fact, in, first, in Ephesians 1.13, be providing for us a constant and lovely guarantee of our eternal salvation. And as the days pass by, you will find that a marvelous event, and you will look forward to gathering with those of like precious faith. You'll be excited about the opportunity to worship. If you've never become a Christian today, there would be no better day than this one. Harden not your heart as at the day of provocation, to quote Hebrews 3.12. If we could be of assistance to you in your initial response to the gospel call of invitation, realize that the Lord demands of you that you must believe His Word, believe Him to be the Son of God. 
repent of the sins in your life, confess His matchless name as the Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of sins. If you need to do that today, the baptismal waters behind me are ready. Brethren are excited about the thought of celebrating with you on this occasion of your obedience. If you have become a Christian, but you really no longer are a genuine one in the sense of finding the Christian life happy and exciting, you need to come back to your first love. And if the failures have been public in character, others will need to know about your repentance so that they can admonish and encourage and so that you can also allow them to know and to pray with you. If we could be of that way of assistance as well, we'd be honored to assist you and to help you. We would only ask that you let us know in what way we can do that while together we stand and while we sing.